Wonderful. You may be seated. Okay, let's see here. <clears throat> All right, well, we're just continuing on here in our study of practical ecclesiology. And uh, why don't I pray for us one more time so that the Lord can bless our time of studying His Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank You again, Lord, for this uh, rich time of fellowship and singing uh, praises to you and uh, lifting up our voices and adoration of who you are. And we, Lord, we're so grateful today to be worshiping beneath your word and under your authority. And Lord, we pray that you would drive these truths that we are looking at today, drive them home, Lord, to our hearts, seal them to our hearts, and let your word have its full effect inside of us, Lord. And Conform us, Lord, with your word. May your word, as it is, sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray, God, that it would have its way in our lives, that it would, Father, uh, that it would purify, that it would refine us, that it would shape and mold us into the image of your Son, Lord. Thank you. Help us to put on now the mind of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, just a word on preaching, uh, because that's what we've been studying is We've been talking about how to profit from the Word of God, and specifically in the context of the local church, in the context of preaching and sermons, and, and uh, in the context of discipleship, how do we benefit from the Word best? And uh, we talked a little bit last week about, uh, we, we went all the way up to the point of uh, studying the Word of God, and just on that issue, uh, let me just say that um, in order for us to study the Word rightly, uh, we need to be serious about the study of the Word. And so if we go back and look at what we said there, we said that studying the Word of God is an act of worship, that it is a matter of discernment, it is a, it's a matter of discipleship, the way that we teach one another, and ultimately a matter of personal growth. And that's why we need to take the study of God's Word serious. And so uh, on that, just again, very practical advice today and just uh, practical points I want to make before moving on to our next point. And that is, uh, for every household at our church, we should have books. Um, we should have commentaries. We, you should have study Bibles. You should have Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias, and things like that, if you do not have those things. I only mention that because sometimes, once in a while, just in conversation with you all uh, throughout the fellowship and throughout the course of our life here, you know, just in interacting with people, I ask them, hey, do you have that commentary, or hey, do you have that book, or hey, do you have that systematic theology? I'm still amazed at how many people don't, and I'm talking about basic stuff. I'm not talking about the most advanced and deepest, and you know, I'm talking about sometimes the most basic, rudimentary sort of tools for Bible study. Be sure uh, that your house has that, that you have that in your home. Um, commentaries, I can, rent, I can recommend many, many, many different commentaries, but you should have, for example, uh, MacArthur's commentaries on the New Testament. That should be something y'all should strive to have uh, the entire set, uh, and it's now completed. John MacArthur finished the book of Luke, and now the entire 27 books of the New Testament he has completed. Matter of fact, we're going to the Shepherds Conference here, a couple of us, uh, and now Robert Reese is threatening to join us, but uh, anyways, he's, he's going now. So, uh, <laughs> so a couple of us plus one, there you go. So, so, so at the Shepherds Conference, one of the things you'll see is that the, uh, the Master Seminary Library, they have taken MacArthur's entire set and they dipped it in bronze and they have it set up on, it's just amazing, it's just, you know, for, you know, exposition geeks and stuff like that, we love that kind of thing. Commentaries in bronze, I mean, that's better than dipping like Kobe shoes in bronze, you know, it's just, I don't know, so anyway, uh, but I would be so pleased if everyone in the church had something like MacArthur's commentary set, William Hendrick's commentary set in your house, that you had a Bible dictionary set, the, maybe the IVP Bible dictionaries in your home, a Bible encyclopedia, these sort of fundamental tools. If not, go out and get yourself some good Bible software like Lagos. Uh, just so that you can have the, stool, the, the tools to do serious Bible study. And uh, again, uh, you know, again, listening to sermons 
so important, you know, for our personal study of the Word of God. I was thinking about this, talk a little bit about sermons today, but, uh, uh, you know, it's so important that we understand that there was a time where, in the Reformed tradition at least, uh, sermons were primary. What do I mean by that? Let me give you one statistic that I recently uh, heard. Uh, There was a decade, at least one or two decades in the 17th century, Puritan preaching, for example, Reformed Puritan preachers. 44% of the books that were published in that period of time were sermons. And so you'd pick up a book, and what was it? It was a collection of somebody's Thomas Brooks, you know, whatever, you know, uh, you know uh, Stephen Sharnock, you know, something like that. It would be someone's sermons. Do you know what the statistic is today? The de- how many books that are being published today that are sermons? We went from 44% at the, high, at the heyday of Puritan Reformed theology to today, 0001 is sermons that are being published today in books. What does that mean? What that means is that we no longer care about sermons. What that means is we no longer think they're important to put in people's hands. What that means is that sermons now are preached in such a way that they wouldn't really amount to very good books. Something is wrong, you see? And so uh, I I just challenge you. I I remember way back in the day, you know, getting up every morning, going to work construction, 5 a.m., 5 a.m., Hitting that California traffic, you know, well, I'm going to be there for a couple hours, so, you know, I might as well tune in to KKLA and listen to John MacArthur. But every day I'd listen to John MacArthur on the way to, on the way to uh, work, you know, and, and just listening to sermons all day, every day. And then when I get to work, I had an MP3 player. Remember those big old honking MP3 players, you know? This is before, like, I, I watches or Apple watches and all that, you know? And I had this big old thing in my pocket all day, you know? <laughs> and I'd end up breaking. I, I went through, like, five of those things. I'd end up smashing them with a tool or something. Anyway, we're sitting with And I just had... You know, I had uh, uh, Piper's MP3s, and I just listened to Piper sermons all day long. And a funny story there, I, 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 I let a guy that claimed to be a Christian at the job site listen to a Piper sermon on Romans 9, you know, and he, he gave it back to me, I kid you not, he gave it back to me. He looked like, why does it go? He's like, I'm not ready for that right now. <laughs> it's, uh, that's way too much, man. You know, I was just like, I understand. So anyway, uh, but listening to sermons over and over and over again, I mean, I never benefited from anything fully unless I listened to it or read it multiple times over and over and over. I think of John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. You know, I've read that book repeatedly because I think it's the soundest Maybe the soundest thing ever written on soteriology in a small, you know, small little bite-sized book, you know, that like that, that book is something all of us should have, you know, within us. And so uh, just amazing that, you know, we, we keep in mind that preaching is un- really under assault uh, and especially the kind of preaching that we do here at our church, exegetical preaching, you know, this deep exposition you know what I mean? It's like Pastor Lynn preaching last week, you know, that deep exposition of Romans, you know? It just, it just uh, that type of preaching is so out of fashion right now. Uh, maybe just within our little reform circles, we think it's still in style. Uh, I promise you, you go outside of that, <laughs> there's really no place for it anywhere in America today. Nobody wants to hear, you know, a pastor talk about a Greek verb. <laughs> you know what I mean? They just want to hear, I mean, just right down the street from my house, a uh, Fellowship Church, you know, Ed Young's whole, you know, thing, just opened up a new thing, you know, day one's like 5,000 cars out in the parking lot, you know, and what are they listening to in there? We know what they're listening to, you know, a pastor swinging from the rafters, and you know, it's just Disneyland, you know, and uh, you go in there and start preaching hard exegetical, it's like parking lot, you know, (laughs) it's like, let's go, where, where can we go see the show again, right? Uh, but that's the way that we grow. That's the way that we're, we're to. And so, you know, preaching, in one sense, you know, we need a revival today in preaching. We need to go back to those foundations. Now, not back to Puritanism, as it were. You know, I don't want, I personally want nothing to do with, you know, trying to be like, you know, back in a different age. You know, Joseph Urban went to Puritan Seminary, you know. I told him, hey, if you start praying in Elizabethan English, I'm going to kick you in the pants, 
because <laughs> I saw a guy once somewhere uh, open up, and this is a young guy, you know, younger than me, gets up in the pulpit and starts praying, Oh, Lord, thou art God, thou beseechest us today. Is that how you talk at Starbucks? You know, I, I'm not talking about adopting this Elizabethan 17th century type of inflection and, and manner about you. No, I, I, I personally don't like that because I want, you know, a, it's like one homiletics pastor, uh, uh, professor said, I want to hear you preach. And when you preach, if you sound like MacArthur or if you sound like Piper, you get an F. Because it better be you in the pulpit and not you trying to sound like, you know, somebody else, right? So I'm not talking about, you know, old wineskins type of thing. No, we need the new wine of exegetical preaching that is experiential and applied to the modern day and the modern man and the modern era. That's what made Puritan preaching so powerful. They spoke to people in their times, they were not trying to recover the old scholastic medieval era of Thomas Aquinas. They were not trying to go back to the patristic era of, you know, Augustine. They were preaching for people in, Eng uh, in England and, and eventually in, even here in America, colonial America. They were preaching to people in their times and speaking their language, you know what I'm saying? And so uh, we need to do the same if we're going to be, because I just believe that, you know, you, you read throughout, you know, Paul's writings and repeatedly, repeatedly, one thing Paul is re almost redundant about is that what he does, it says he does in sincerity, sincerity, sincerity. You see what I'm saying? He, he was real. He was raw. It was Paul. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't trying to be somebody that he was not. And so we need to, we need to really think about that and uh, make sure that we are, uh, you know, that we're, we're, we're preaching for our time today. And I know that that, you know, can sound like, well, are you saying like we're going to adapt to the culture and all that? No, but preach to the culture, you see? <laughs> don't, don't, don't talk about, you know, the, the, the old paths of Spurgeon. We're no longer in Spurgeon's day, you know? It's like I even heard some churches, they would get up sometimes and they would just preach Spurgeon sermons, you know? Just read like his sermons. Like, what? I mean, what did we just sing right now? Fresh manna, <laughs> right? Like we need preaching for this hour, you know, Spurgeon ran his course. We can learn from him, but I don't think Spurgeon would want us to either sound like him, try to imitate him, or try to, you know, re, uh, uh, regurgitate his preaching to a modern, day, a modern day man. No, that has its place. We learn from them. It's a legacy. We build on that. We stand on shoulders of giants, but we must preach to the current need, the current hour. And uh, uh, let me just give you one example. I'm way off base, by the way. So if you're looking at I'm just, who knows where I'm at right now? <laughs> but this is important. Like, for the longest time, Robert knows this, I've been keeping my eye on things like technological singularity, robotics, where we're going with all that crazy stuff. It's so funny because I saw a video from the 90s, like early 90s, and it was Greg Bonson. And Greg Bonson was saying, one day you, in the near future, you're, you're, you're going to have to deal with stuff like robotics and AI and I was like it's this old crusty film and he's talking about you know like the Terminator movie he's like this is Greg Bonson he's like basically like that that's coming you know what I mean I like can you imagine hearing that back then you'd be like whoa where's Bonson going with all this right and now what do you see I mean just Google you know or go to YouTube and watch you know the latest Google robots or you know uh, I don't know, Lynn can probably come up here and tell us, lecture us on all that stuff. But you see what I'm saying? It's like, here we are now, you know, designer babies are coming and, you know, all this stuff, you know what I'm saying? And I, for a long time, I've been calling for who's doing something on this? Who's studying this out? Who's, who's, and I, I, I uh, you know, I even talked to folks that, uh, like when I met Lane Tipton, I asked him, hey man, are you, are you up on anything having to do with like technological singularity and these guys? He goes, you know what? One of my seminary students told me I need to look into that stuff. And I'm like, man, our, some of our best thinkers right now are not looking into any of that. Well, finally, somebody, I saw it on the Westminster, uh, uh, Westminster Seminary website, somebody finally put out a book on transhumanism and technology and how we're to navigate that through uh, Christian ethics. It's just remarkable. And I'm just saying, like, that's what I mean by we need to be preaching to our times. I mean, understand that the people we talk to today are like this you know, 70% of the day, 
I mean, that's a different human being. <laughs> you know, that's a different person, you know. So, uh, but anyway, uh, I have so much more to talk about in, in terms of uh, studying and profiting from the Word. But I just wanted to give you guys tips on how to profit from the Word in Bible study. And I tell you what, these are some very uh, easy things that y'all need to be doing. But uh, every one of you, at some fundamental level, you need to be organized as a student of Scripture. Do you know what the word disciple means? Mathetes. The word disciple means, like where we get our word mathematics, right? It means one who learns. To be a follower of Jesus means you are a learner. So you are a student. What, what would they call Jesus, remember? Rabboni, teacher right? That's who he was. He was their teacher, and we are his students, and every one of us is to be a student of the Word of God, and so I tell you, all of you need to be organized at whatever level you're at, organized in getting your notes together, having projects that you're working on, even if it's a verse, to try to figure that verse out, figure that book out in the Bible. Uh, the Master Seminary has a discipline. Students cannot graduate uh, with a master's in divinity if they cannot, by memory, outline the entire Bible. Meaning, you can say Genesis 1 through 5 is, you know, day 1, 5 through 7, day 2, Genesis, you know, verses 7 through 9, that's day 3. You know, they can do that with the whole Bible. Not all at once, but in chunks. They're able to take, you know, Romans chapter 1, gospel is the power of salvation. Romans chapter 2, condemnation of sin, you know, you know except, boom, 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 all the way through the Bible. So do that yourself. Just get, get an outline going and start outlining the entire Bible. You can do that. Or start with a book. Start small. Don't overwhelm yourself. But, you know, you've got like, you know, I don't know how long God's going to give you. You've got some time. You know, just start doing it. You know what I mean? And, and you'll be amazed what you will, how you will benefit from something like that. Also, what I would tell you to do is this. Pick a, pick a, pick a book of the Bible and seek to master it. Pick a book of the Bible and seek to master it. Seek to really get into it. Uh, when we were, uh, when I was taking Greek exegesis, we were going through Daniel Wallace's grammar, and the book that we had to master in Greek was Colossians. And so we had to take the Greek text of Colossians, and we had to begin in verse 1, and we had to annotate the entire Greek uh, text of Colossians, and we had to make as many observations grammatically of the text. And I tell you, I got, I got down to like verse 4 or 5. I, I was in tears at the power of the Word of God, the, the, the intricacy, the, 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 the genius of Scripture, this, the supernatural inspiration of Scripture, and I'm thinking, it's endless, it's endless, it's endless. The connections and the depth and, you know what I'm saying? Like here we are preaching the word of God for how many thousands of years now and even today the word of God is still fresh and can still land with us and we're still learning new things and new work needs to be done and more work needs to be done in theology. Only a supernatural inspired word of God is capable of sustaining uh, uh, the church for in its entire existence in this age it's just amazing. So pick a book of the Bible, learn it really good. I would suggest like entry level stuff would be like uh, pick like First John, uh, the book of Philippians, maybe the book of Galatians, a little harder, the book of Galatians. For some of you that want a little bit more advanced theology, pick the book of Romans or the book of Hebrews. And, uh, and just seek to, little by little, just master that, which means you have commentaries that you're reading. Oh, and this too, for every single last one of you, always read above your pay grade, meaning always challenge yourself to read something you have no earthly business reading, and just stretch those gray cells in your brain to force them to learn things that they cannot, that, that you don't know right now. You know, it's kind of like when I'm teaching the Klein group, I'm just watching face and <laughs> Ricky's like, can you say that again, please? <laughs> like, that's the third time you asked me to say that again. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but that's good for us, right? Because we're just stretching, we're growing, we're learning new concepts and new things that we've never known before. All of that is involved in this. That's all worship to God, and that's all for our personal discernment. That is all for our capacity to disciple one another, whether it's within our own homes, ourselves, our friends, whatever, and of course for our own maturity. So next, uh, we're looking at two more slides uh, on this. I think just two. Yeah, just two more. But 
but uh, profiting from the Word of God, and I say here, grow in the Word, and that's kind of part of it. Let's turn there, Hebrews chapter 5, uh, for example. No one's off the hook here today. No one can hide. You can't sink into the crevices of the pews. This is for all of us. And what does it say here? I need a bigger pulpit. I got like multiple devices, Bibles, Apple pencils, everything. Okay, look at this text. This is like essential for thinking what, about what we're doing here. Profiting from the Word of God, growing in the Word of God, this heavy exhortation that's given in one of the heaviest books of the entire Bible uh, on a subject that is one of the most difficult, heavy subjects dealing with the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ. How much can you talk about the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ, right? <laughs> it's tough. Listen, I preached Hebrews. It's tough. But listen to what the author of Hebrews says. He says, verse 11, concerning him, i.e. Melchizedek, we have much to say. And you know how preachers can go on and on, so got much to say. And it is hard to explain. Wow. So the exegesis, the theology, the explanation of Melchizedek is, even according to the author of Hebrews, difficult. And he says, I'll go back to your lives, citizens, nothing to see here. No. He doesn't let us off the hook. He says, since you have become dull of hearing, what's the major obstacle to the theology of Melchizedek. It's not that we don't have answers. It's not that we cannot know. It's not that it's impossible to learn. It's not that it's not a, a, an issue of willingness to teach it. It's that the congregation had become dull of hearing. They were no longer responsive to the word of God. They sort of sunk into a lull. And uh, this happens, you know. Uh, this can happen very easily. Now, book of Hebrews is written when? probably right before 70 A.D. I think it's written probably about 68 A.D., right before the destruction of the temple because there's no reference to the destruction of the temple in the book of Hebrews. And if, the book, if any book in the Bible is going to mention the destruction of the temple, it's going to be the book of Hebrews, right? And uh, as a matter of fact, he even talks about the outer tabernacle, i.e. the temple, still standing. So it seems like it's still standing. <laughs> so so it, it, most uh, commentators would say, yeah, right around 68, 69 possibly, uh, A.D., and, uh, uh, you know, right, uh, during that time, during that period, uh, he says here, uh, what was I going to say? You guys help me. Where was I going with that? No, seriously, like sometimes my brain just collapses since you have heard and become dull of hearing. The congregation, oh, yes, this is what I was going to say. That's why I mentioned the timing is because how removed is this congregation from the original apostolic period of time that was going on there? These are now several decades after the book of Acts and, and some of that. You, you see what I'm saying here? So what's going on here uh, is a phenomenon that even back in you know, early Reformed uh, generations, they would point out that sometimes the second generation of a very important generation, let's say like the Reformation, and then a couple generations after that, right? There's a strange dullness that comes upon that generation. Why? Because everything just becomes rote. Everything just becomes, you know, just repetitive and ceremonial and, you know what I mean, ho-hum. And, and it lacks that initial vibrant fire, that zeal, that revival type of thing, right? And so it's almost like maybe this, is ex this generation here in Hebrews is experiencing a little of that. Almost like settling in, yes, you know, we've heard about the gospel. We heard what happened with the apostles. We know what Jesus, you know, we've learned about the appearances. You know, we've got all that down, right? It's something happened to this congregation where it's starting to kind of settle into this being lulled to sleep, so to speak, you know? And it's the task of the preacher, and it's the task of preaching to wake you up out of that lull of sleep to say, hey, wake up, you know? <laughs> don't, don't be, this, this, is a, this is a deception of the enemy. You need to wake up, you know? This is, you know, your, your generation is just as important as any other generation, okay? And, uh, and so he's saying here, you become dull of hearing. For, though by this time you ought to be teachers... What's amazing about that there is he's, this is a general exhortation to the whole church. General exhortation to the whole church. 
You ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And so it's like by now you should be able to be connecting these dots. And here you are, I don't know how many years later, still needing the ABCs of Christianity. You know, you need, so what is that, you guys, what is that, what does that imply? What's the implication there? Anybody want to take a stab at that? What's the, what's the, what are some of the implications there? Maybe not just one, but what are some of the implications there? You ought to be teachers by now, but you need the ABCs of Christianity again. Yes, Ricky. Spiritual immaturity. Certainly that's what's going on. Anything else implied there? Anyone? Yes, sir. Complication? Obligation. Obligation. Yes. That's right. I'm trying to repeat stuff because people told me on the audio they can't hear the questions. But uh, yes, the obligation, right? Or we could even say the expectation. There's an expectation that I would say is growth. The expectation is that you had been growing this, t- this whole time. But if you're not careful, Christians, you will, if you kick it in neutral, you know, you'll coast, right? I grew up in Southern California. I lived at, I lived at the beach many summers. And there's one thing about being in the ocean, right? If you're not active in the ocean, if you're not paddling on your surfboard or your, you know, bodyboard or whatever, if you're just kind of floating around, you look up, man, you were at, you know, you were at this lifeguard, lifeguard 10, you, you, you turn your head and you just wait for a few minutes next to you, you're at lifeguard 18, you don't even know how you got there. And you're swimming back, you know, trying, so you got to be paddling in the Christian life. You got to be constantly moving. You need to be progressing because if you kick it in just cruise control and you start coasting, you, the current of your flesh, the world, the flesh, the devil, the current of that will drag you away from where you're supposed to be, you see? And so we, we cannot approach uh, the study of the Word of God and profiting from the Word of God. We cannot approach that haphazardly. We need to be extremely intentional about that. Again, let me qualify that by saying uh, it is not expected of you to know as much theology as the next guy, etc., etc. What we're saying is that every one of us, at whatever stage we're at, we must be making progress, you see? And uh, as Jonathan Edwards says, no, I'm not talking to you, Siri. See what I mean, technological singularity? Siri now making its way into our Sunday school lesson. Jonathan Edwards said, resolve to study the Scripture so steadily, so readily, as to, uh, make, uh, as, to, as to clearly perceive that I am growing thereby. And what he meant was, I'm going to immerse myself in the study of the Word of God such that I can perceive my growth. <laughs> that, that's amazing, you know. And uh, I think we're all capable of it at some level. Yes, sir. That's right. And that's a good point. Uh, second Peter chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, with the apostle Peter there is talking about, yeah, just to be careful, right, that uh, undisciplined, unprincipled men who twist the scripture, is that what he says there? They twist the scripture to their own destruction. In other words, why? Because it's an amazing parallel, Robert, actually, because just like Hebrews there in that very text, uh, Peter says that uh, right before that, I don't know if it's verse 16, but he says, you know, Paul writes things, and some of those things are hard to understand. <laughs> so even Peter was like, you know, even he was like, some of the stuff Peter, that Paul writes is difficult. Even for him, you know, he acknowledges some of this stuff is not easy. Uh, you know, I told you guys before, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 18, I mean, that is one of the hardest sections in Paul to exegete and uh, and so that's you know the point well taken there. Look at what it says here. Someone to teach you again the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. And so he goes into this whole metaphor of of uh, of, of, of 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 a child and growing and uh, being nurtured and all of this. He's just malnourished and, and things like this. For everyone who partakes of milk only is not accustomed 
to the word of righteousness. Wow. It's almost like he doesn't say it there, but this is what he means. We need to be accustomed to the word of righteousness. I was listening to, uh, I was, I was listening to uh, uh, Joel Beakey uh, uh, talk about uh, he was going to England to look for rare Puritan books, you know, because he studies the Puritans so much. And he says he always knew when he's in a bookstore somewhere and he looks over at a shelf and there's this old book, but it's in perfect condition. He says, I knew that I, just from across the room, I can tell that book is probably an Anglican book. <laughs> so we're going to take some shots at Anglicans real quick. <laughs> what he was saying is this, is that the Anglicans were so philosophical, so abstract. They were so concerned more with their prose than with their theology and just their Bible-saturated type. It was di- totally different. The, uh, the Anglicans and Puritans would go at it with each other and accuse each other of, you know, Anglicans would be like, man, you Puritans, you guys are just too hardcore, you're too zealous, you're too, you're fire and brimstone, you need to calm down, you know. And then the Puritans would be like, oh, you guys are dead and <laughs> you guys have no zeal and, you know what I mean, you guys need revival, you know. So they'd go at it, right? But the Puritans would say, you know, that their theology was, they, they cared more about their theology being so polished, right? But Beaky would say, then I'd look across the room, and if I see a book, and it's, in ta- it's tattered, it's broken down, it's beaten up, he goes, I just guarantee you that's a Puritan book. And it's because people would go to that Puritan book, and they would just tear it up. They would consume it. You see what I'm saying? Whereas an Anglican book, just more something you would admire, you know, but that, what, what a beautiful illustration. That's the way that we should be with our Bibles, right? We should tear our Bibles, you know, apart, metaphorically, studying our Bibles. We should just, if you write in your Bible, I forgive you, but <clears throat> first time I met my wife, actually, one of the first times I looked over at this girl sitting in the pew next to me, and I looked down at her Bible, and I was just like, Wow. That's the most desecrated Bible I've ever seen in my life. I mean, she had color-coded and just pens and white out, and I was just like, whoa, dude. And I'm like the kind, you know, you won't find a single mark in this. I take a lot of pride in that, so, you know, it's like unless Eden got in here somehow. But, you know, I, I, I don't write in my Bible, but if you write in your Bible, good. Write in your Bible if your conscience allows you to do that. I'm just saying, tear it up. Just feed into it. Go after it. Don't, we, we should not have these pretty little pristine Bibles put up on the shelf that look nice. No way. Our Bibles should be worn so that our souls will have the mileage of having been in our Bibles. You see? That kind of thing. Yes, Morgan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Amen, brother. And you see the importance of it here. That's 208. Uh, Let's look at our outline here. You know, why do we want to grow in the Word of God like this? Well, let's finish. uh, No, no, no. I'm going to be a responsible pastor. Let's finish uh, Hebrews 5, at least reading it. So we get his point, right? Everyone who partakes of the milk only is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. And there... That word there, infant, is spoken pejoratively, meaning negatively. It is not good to be an infant in this context. There's other contexts in which being an infant is a good thing, you know. Uh, when it comes to evil, be innocent like an infant, you know, or something like that. But here, to be an infant is a, is a sign of being malnourished in the Word of God. It means that you are not growing, you're not maturing, you know, um, it's like right now we're having this battle, my wife and I, with Eden. You know, she wants to keep her a baby. You know, she's keep her a baby. And like, no, she's got to you know, grow up a little bit. You know, she's, you know, so we're having this. She wants, she, I don't want to lose my baby. And I get I'm glad she's not here. But she's like, you know, she, but let's say, let's, you know, fast forward 15 years from now, she still wants to keep Eden a baby. Okay, it's like, psychiatrist, please, you know. Like, we're having a problem here, right? Like, so, so, you know, it, 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 it's like, yes. The infant stages of the Christian life are precious and they're beautiful, right? You meet a young Christian and they're just, everything's so new to them and they bring you stuff. It's like they bring you the most basic, you know, I don't know, insight. They think they found, you know, like, you know, the holy grail of, you know, exegesis because they found out that, you know, I don't know, the word world has more than one meaning, 
<laughs> you know, they, <laughs> they heard something from James White or something. You know what I mean? And, and you just look at them with this like, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> you know, which is great. It's great. And we should praise them. But you keep bringing that insight back to me 20 years from now, there's something wrong, man. You, you, I mean, you should be a teacher of Calvinism by now. You shouldn't need somebody to tell you the ABCs of Christianity. You see, you see what I'm saying? And uh, sometimes when I reunite with old friends that are still stuck in bad church traditions, it's, it's, it's kind of sad to hear them talk. They're still using the same language, the same categories, the same type of terminology. I, I'm talking about where it's, you can tell they have not grown. They're not really making progress in theology and, and stuff like that. And, you know, that's, that's not the way God ordained it. You know, he wants us to grow. Uh, but solid food is for the mature. Notice that. In other words, that's our goal. Our goal is to mature. And our goal is to eat solid food. If you're going to live on chicken nuggets for the rest of your life, I mean, you know, we, we want you eventually to have a ribeye. You know, but if you just keep going back to the Happy Meal, you know, it's, you're going to be mal, mal, malnourished, you know, uh, who because, I mean, and I speak as someone who eats McDonald's from time to time. Is that really food? Anyway, I literally wonder sometimes, am I eating food? What is this? You know, anyway, <laughs> they tell me it's food, <laughs> who because sometimes it tastes like cardboard, you know, but it's, it's okay. I mean, come on, you let a french fry from McDonald's, you let it cool down for five minutes, I mean, it's like styrofoam. Something's wrong there. Anyway, you know, you know I'm right. <laughs> Just look at the fries that fall in between your... Anyways, <laughs> you know it's true. Because who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. I like that because it emphasizes what's at stake. It is not just that you can't measure up to the, the guy or the girl next to you theologically. What is at stake is your capacity to discern good and evil. I mean, that's, whoa, he takes it right to that. You see that? Amazing. That's, that's what's at stake here. And so uh, that kind of segues into what I'm talking about here in terms of why do we grow in the word in this fashion? Well, number one, to combat doubt. Uh, understand that your mind throughout your Christian life is going to be plagued with doubt. Uh, think of the moment of your death. Should the Lord will that you have a deathbed experience, there you are lying on your bed in the hospital or in a retirement home somewhere, somewhere you know who knows what the lord will ordain for each one of us but there we are and we know that death is vastly approaching should the normal course of things continue this way what where's our mind going to be at that point you know i'll tell you where it's going to be it's going to be under assault by the evil one i tell you what i make a request right now to people that when i'm dying on a bed somewhere please don't let me have a television in the room Last thing I want to look at is Oprah before I meet God. You know what I mean? Like, uh, t please remove it from me. Uh, somebody just sit by my side and, and, uh, and read scriptures. Uh, you know, uh, I told you guys about Joseph. We're going to talk about Joseph a little bit today. But uh, Joseph Urban, you know, his health and where he's heading here with his health. And he got so concerned here the other day, like his wife called me and he told her, here's the scriptures that I need you to have on hand in case I'm dying. If I'm dying, I want you by my side reading these texts to me over and over. And, uh, and, and smart man, you know, that's the way we want to go, so to speak. You know, he's okay right now, but we're going to talk about him. But, uh, but, but understand that throughout your Christian life, you will encounter doubt. How do you know that for certain? Throughout your life, you're going to encounter doubt. How do you know that for certain? You can be assaulted with doubt. Hey, listen. You know, uh, a slave is not above his master. Jesus was assaulted by the, by the devil, attempting to get him to doubt the word of God. You know, at the pinnacle of his career. And what do you think is going to happen to you? You know? Okay, but that aside, how do you know for certain that you're going to encounter doubt throughout your life? How do you know that? How are some other indications of that? Anyone? You don't know the future. You don't know the future, but you do know that you are going to be tempted with doubt, you know? 
But yeah, you don't know what the future holds in one sense. You know, anything can come in. Anything, any heresy could blow through the church or, you know, things like that. You know what I'm thinking about? Just to cut to the quick here is you know this because you have scholars who doubt. You have theologians, scholars. You have men who who do everything they're supposed to do in terms of theology. They get a degree, they go to, they go, they learn the languages, they become, you know, PhDs, you know, all this stuff, and then they get in a seminary somewhere, and, you know, their career progresses, and the next thing you know, you know, they're starting to make kind of weird statements, fishy statements, and then next thing you know, people are talking about he's going liberal or whatever, and next thing you know, they full-blown come out with some crazy liberal theology, you know? Next thing you know, they don't even profess the faith anymore. You know how many men and women go down that path? Uh, many, 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 many. And so you know that it doesn't matter. It's not just because you're getting smarter theologically. You have to really, uh, it's a heart issue. And uh, if, you don't, if you don't prioritize the word of God in your life, that the word of God has the final say. Remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? Has God really said? Right? Remember James chapter 1, verses 5 and following? A double-minded person is unstable in all of their ways. Don't, don't let that person suppose that they will get anything from God. Doubt is not good. And we live in an age today where people are saying Doubt is good. It's noble. It's good to doubt. It's authentic. I mean, how many times have I heard Christians say that kind of stuff? It's okay to doubt. No, it's not. It is an affront to God. You are doubting his authority, his existence. You are doubting his word. You are doubting his glory. That is not okay in the eyes of God. It's a weakness. And that's why Jude tells us, be patient with those that doubt. It's something we need to endure in a sense of, this is a flaw that we have. We need to endure this. We don't need to coddle it. We don't need to prize it. We don't need to make much of it. We need to call it what it is, right? It's dangerous. And so what does Hebrews say? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. I think it's verse 21. No doubting, no wavering, full assurance of faith. That's what I want. That's what I want for you guys. Full you know, assurance of faith, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. Any anybody want to speak to that at all? We're almost yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. I think in our anti-supernatural, materialistic, naturalistic, evolutionary culture that we live in, whew, you know, we just have reduced Satan to some sort of cartoonish caricature that doesn't really exist, doesn't factor into our lives. And also because we're scarred because of the charismatic and Pente really the Pentecostal movements, you know, de the devil's behind every pew and, you know, under every pulpit and, you know, every nook and cranny, right? He's like omniscient omniscient, you know, omnipresent, you know, and we understand that where it's like the devil is almost, you know, it's, it's exaggerated to a point that of absurdity, but we also don't want to be ignorant, as Paul says, of his devices, and so what do we do? We combat doubt with the word of God. We also renew our thinking, renew our minds, and I, I that, that whole idea of renewing your mind, I mean, this is why sermons matter. This is why preparing for sermons matter, taking notes on sermons matter, studying, having a life of personal Bible study in your life, having a study station, having commentaries. This is why all this matters because this is how we renew our mind, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and also strengthen our faith. Because if there's one thing the devil wants is he wants to devour our faith. He wants to eat up our faith. You know, uh, what did Jesus tell Peter upon his denial, right? And upon his restoration there in the, gospel, the end of the Gospel of John, he says, uh, you know, Peter, you know, the Satan has asked to sift you like we, but I have prayed for you that what? That your faith would not fail. See, that's what Satan wanted from Peter. He wanted to devour his faith, his belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what 
what this entire world is geared to do. And so we need to be strengthening our faith. So Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I think it's Christ. Everybody say God. All the God say yeah, and all the Christ say <laughs> I think it's Christ. Somebody double check that. But, uh, you know, exactly. Uh, also in Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 11, they're talking about protecting your heart, guarding your heart, hiding the law of God in your heart, as the Proverbs tell us, from the heart issue, the, the, uh, come forth the issues of life. And so we have to be, our hearts have to constantly be protected by the law of the Lord. And that happens through meditating, memorizing God's law, delighting in the law of the Lord, and uh, so many things, and also leading your family. How do I, and this is going to be insensitive, but I don't have time. Uh, Come and ask me later. (laughs) Profiting from the word of God, last point here, last slide, because I really do want to get to next week uh, uh, tackling uh, church membership. Um, But here's, uh, how how else do we profit from the word of God? I would say by spirit. By spreading the word. So we go, from, we go from growing in the word to spreading the word. So spreading the word, obviously, through our preaching. Um, as, a, as a congregation, we do this holistically as a church. What does 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 say? Uh, maybe I should read it for you all. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. A beautiful verse for any church. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. You could translate that from you all because it's plural. From you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. What a beautiful verse about the church and its testimony, its evangelism, of course. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it talks about the church and how it went everywhere preaching the word of God. And, and, and just look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, just check out what happens there. Boom, 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 boom. It's like the, the word of the Lord comes, it spreads everywhere. And then, bam, you're looking at demon possession. And then you're, you're looking at, you know, Philip and his evangelist. It's, action-packed, Acts chapter 8, of, and it's all of the word of the Lord. How, what is the entire book of Acts about? The entire book of Acts is about how the word of the Lord grew. And so you have these texts all throughout the book of Acts, and the word of the Lord grew, and the word of the Lord grew, and the word of the Lord grew all throughout the book of Acts, showing how the progress of the gospel was spreading throughout the region through the church. It was just amazing. And also, I said, uh, you know, spreading the word of God through our own personal sacrifice. And so there I talk about, I, well, I would, I would recommend you look at passages like Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, of the Apostle Paul, for the sake of the faith of the people of God, says he's being poured out like a drink offering. In other words, spreading the word of God is going to require sacrifice And so, brothers and sisters, I just would ask you, how are you sacrificing to spread the word of God? How are you doing it? We all play a different role. I knew a guy at church, so quiet, so reserved, uh, shy, not the kind of guy that wants to talk in public or in a group or anything like that, uh, but happened to be wealthy and very serious about the Lord. And what he would do is he would buy computers and he would load them up with Bible software and he would send them out to missionaries throughout the world. That's, he doesn't have to open his mouth, you know? I mean, he, you know, meaning he doesn't have to be at the tip of the spear, but look at that. He's equipping a pastor out in the middle of nowhere, you know, with a computer loaded up with Bible software. Everyone does a part, you see? And where are we sacrificing in order to spread the word of God? And last of all, of course, is spreading the word of God through confidence, being confident in the Word of God, in its sufficiency, its power, its authority. One last scripture, and we'll close. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Why do we go to Paul so much? Why do we go to Paul so much to prove some of these points? 
You ever find it excessive or detaching or like, well, that's Paul, though, <laughs> right? He's an apostle, inspired. He does miracles, you know. I mean, I'm not Paul, you know. <laughs> uh, why do we go to Paul so much? Anyone? I don't want to pick on you, but I just you were closest. Anybody, why do we go to the Apostle Paul so much? And is that okay? Anyone? Yes, Mom? He's a great example in everything. Very good. Amen. He is an example. And actually, I'm trying to think of the passage now. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So it just seems like Paul was paradigmatic in so many ways for the Christian life, you see. He was an example. And also, let's not forget that Paul everywhere tells the church, follow my example, imitate my example. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, be imitators of me, you know, all these texts. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? All those passages. So I just never, never, never uh, find yourself like, well, that's Paul. I'm not Paul. I think sometimes we can do that. What did I say? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, yes in order to be confident in the spreading of the word of God. Listen to what Paul says here. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly, literally run, that the word would run quickly and be glorified. I love that. I love that. The word of God be glorified. Wow. Notice the personification there. (laughs) right? Glorifying the Word of God, magnifying it, in other words, making much of the Word of God. What he's saying is pray for us that this would happen quickly. There, there would be a, 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 an advancement through us of the Word of God, and uh, that is certainly one way that we can profit from that, is we can join with that, as Paul tells the Philippians. Join with me, right, in the defense of the gospel, the advancement of the gospel, and there are the creatures of the deep. the swarms of Genesis 1. (laughs) Anyway, God bless you. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll start our service.